Philippians chapter 1, our sermon text for this morning. Our passage is verses 9 through 11, a short prayer that the Apostle Paul says, but we will begin with verse 3. So we'll read 3 through 11, focusing on verses 9 through 11, but 3 through 11 will give us the context as Paul begins this wonderful letter. As I finish this passage, I will say, this is the word of the Lord. You may respond with thanks be to God. This is God's word. He gives it to his people for our good. Let us give our attention to its reading. Philippians 1, verse 3. I thank my God every time I remember you. In all my prayers for all of you, I always pray with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. Being confident of this, that he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. It is right for me to feel this way about all of you, since I have you in my heart. For whether I am in chains or defending and confirming the gospel, all of you share in God's grace with me. God can testify how I long for all of you with the affection of Christ Jesus. Here's our passage today. And this is my prayer, that your love may abound more and more in knowledge and depth of insight, so that you may be able to discern what is best and may be pure and blameless until the day of Christ filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Amen. When I was growing up as a young boy, I would always want my mom, when she would go grocery shopping, I'd want her to pick up a box of Wheaties. It was the uh, breakfast of champions, after all. And my favorite athlete of my entire life, a basketball player with whom you'd be very familiar in this area of the country, made commercials for Wheaties. And it was my impression that this is how he started every day. He would wake up and pour himself a bowl of Wheaties, and he's a champion. It's the breakfast of champions. I figure I was on my way to being a champion, so this is how I needed to start my day. You can imagine how difficult it was for me to find out that uh, millionaire athletes who have uh, every delicacy of food at their constant disposal probably don't start each day with a bowl of Wheaties. And you kind of come to that realization at some point. The people who endorse these kinds of products probably rarely use them. And that, of course, says something about their confidence in that thing. I read this week that evangelical Christians pray about four minutes a day. Four minutes a day in quite a sad commentary on whether or not we believe in the power of prayer and whether or not we believe that it actually is approaching the throne of grace, the throne of the eternal God, and that he delights to hear our prayer and to answer them. 
found this quote. I quote him often, as you know, Richard Sibbs, perhaps my favorite Puritan, says this. When we shoot an arrow, we look to the fall of it. When we send a ship to sea, we look for its return. And when we sow seed, we look for a harvest. So likewise, when we sow our prayers through Christ, shall we not look for an answer? It seems that perhaps our endorsement of prayer often becomes like those celebrities or athletes who endorse a product with no intention and no reality of actually using it in their lives. The Apostle Paul was quite different, particularly in this passage. He puts on display exactly what he teaches and preaches. That is, that there are some things that only God can give you, Thus, I will pray that God will give them to you so that you will live in accordance with that virtue. What we're talking about is love. A special kind of love, a a self-denying love that Paul is praying for, for the Philippian Christians. So here's our life-transforming reality this morning. Self-denying love is a gift of God. It must come from him. So we must earnestly pray that God would grant it to us as a blessing that comes in Christ and actively seek out to live in accordance with that love. Did you get that? Self-denying love is a gift of God. Only he can give it. So we must earnestly pray for it and actively seek to live in accordance with that love. My seminary professor gave a great delineation of this passage, so I'm going to use it from him. He said, here we see the what, the why, and the how. What is it that we are to ask for in prayer? Why should we ask for it? In other words, what does it result in? What does it cause? And then how God gives it. What, why, and how. First, the what of what we might ask for in prayer, this self-denying love. Notice, first of all, of course, that this is a prayer And Paul is asking for this blessing in prayer. And there's something very important for us to to get here. What does it mean to be a a gospel Christian, a gospel-centered Christian? Well, we have a perfect representation right here in the prayer of Paul. He prays that God would give us this love that only God can give, and that love will result in action and obedience and performance. So often our minds want to skip that step and go straight to the obedience and performance. Oftentimes we do it uh, reflective upon other people. Sometimes a young child might pray something like, God, uh, please help my brother or sister to share their their toys with me more often. As a parent, I find that I'm often doing this. I'm trying to give little lessons in my prayer need to remind myself to pray more like Paul in this passage, to give us love that flows forth into obedience. Sometimes we'll pray things like, God, please help whatever child I'm praying with, please help her or him to live uh, in, a, in a kinder way. You're almost instructing or giving your own um, ideas through the prayer. Here Paul shows us a true gospel-centered prayer. Pray for what only God can give and then see the fruits that it produces. So Paul says, this is my prayer. I pray that your love may abound more and more. In other words, I pray that God might increase the love in your hearts more and more. That's why he's praying. Pray to God. Only God can give it. But we immediately wonder, what does Paul mean by love? What is the the kind of love he's talking about? We have a lot of ideas that 
exists under the umbrella of love in the English language, don't we? We use it to describe romance. We use it to describe uh, friendly closeness and affection. We use it to describe family ties. In our colloquial use of the word, we often use it to overstate how much we like something. I kind of admit I had to cringe a little bit this week when uh, one of my beloved daughters came up to me and said, Daddy, do you love golf? And I thought, oh, maybe I'm showing my affection for this sport a little bit too clearly. So I had to tell her, I like golf and I love you. I like books. I love Jesus. We use it to overstate how much we like things. But Paul is not using it that way. Paul is not wanting them to increase in their capacity to be romantic, that your love may abound more and more. All of a sudden, the husbands come home with a dozen roses the next day. That's not what he's wanting to describe or what he's asking for. The passion of of romance is actually often self-serving, right? It's exciting. It, It feels good to fall into romantic love. The same can often be said for our our friendly love, the the close friendship that we enjoy. It it can oftentimes be self-serving because we love to be with our friends so much. They encourage us, they build us up, and all of that can be great. But when it becomes merely self-serving, it is a problem. But Paul is not speaking of those, romantic love or the love of friendship. He's speaking of a love that costs dearly. He's speaking of a love that is not self-serving, it's self-denying. It's the kind of love that we read about in Romans 5 this morning. God shows his own love for us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. It's the love of John 3.16, for God so loved the world that he gave. This love means giving more than getting. This love means giving, and giving in the scriptures means dying. A love that gives and a love that dies. John three sixteen, and then it's easy to remember the Apostle John giving a further definition of love in 1 John three sixteen. By this we know love, that he, Christ, laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. This is the kind of love. Oftentimes in scripture, the word used there is agape, And we can't be so strict with the way that we understand it, saying it's always that self-serving, self-sacrificial love. But that's what Paul means here. Self-denying, sacrificial love that costs dearly, that gives more than it gets. It's a gift of God, and that's why Paul is praying for it. It's the love that compels the Father to give the Son. How deep the Father's love for us, that song that we sing. That he would give his only Son to make a wretch his treasure. The love that holds Christ on the path to the cross that makes him go all the way to the end. Would he devote that sacred head for such a worm as I? A love that costs dearly. It's a love that God held for his people from all eternity. From all eternity, Christ saw what was best in you. He saw what was best in me. And what was best was not very good, was it? The best that was in me was not very good, and yet he willed to go and die for me because of love. It's a love that costs dearly. It's a love that's patterned after our triune God, the story of redemption. 
Is Paul speaking here of love of God or love of neighbor? Uh, Love of whom, in other words? That's an interesting thought, isn't it? Because Paul seems completely unable to separate one from the other. As God gives you this love, you love your God more and more. It naturally flows out into love of neighbor. Ephesians 5.2, walk in love, Paul is saying, walk in love towards each other as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. Guilt, grace, gratitude, sin, salvation, service, it flows out of the gospel. The call of that gospel, give yourself to this Savior who gave himself for you, and in like manner, give yourself to others. Let that reflect the way that you live your life. Love, the greatest motivator in the world. I spoke a couple weeks ago. Ronald Reagan gave that famous speech at Normandy. What caused these soldiers to give of themselves, to be perfectly happy and willing to give their life for a cause because they loved it. He said it was faith and belief. It was loyalty and love that causes you to go. Love is the greatest motivator in the world. And that's what Paul prays for here, a love that gives more than it gets. This is a worthy thing to pray for. The lesson here is that we ought to pray for this as well. Pray for it for ourselves. Pray for it for others, for our brothers and sisters in Christ, that God might cause this love to abound more and more. It's the kind of thing we ought to be praying for. In James chapter 4, you do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. It's a huge problem, isn't it? We come to God and often we think that we're approaching him and there's some sort of transaction that happens so that we can kind of get what we want. We pay our dues at the throne of grace and he'll give us some trinket or some promotion or something we've been wanting in this life. And there are many good things in this life and things that we can enjoy. But are we asking to spend it on our passions? That's not why God has revealed himself to us He has done so so that we might serve him, right? So that we might serve him in spirit and in truth. Speaking of the spirit, that's really what Paul's prayer centers around. It's asking that the spirit of Christ would dwell in us more and more to bring out this Christian virtue of self-denying love. The spirit of Christ dwells in you. The spirit of Christ, the very same Christ who laid down his life for you. And so Sibs goes on to say, where Christ's spirit is... He will bring men from their altitudes and excellencies and make them to stoop to serve the church and account it an honor to be an instrument to do good. Christ was content to be accounted not only a servant of God, but of the church. Your Lord became a servant. Where his spirit is, he will create a love of being a servant, a self-denying love. But this love is to be accompanied by other things as well. Knowledge and depth of insight. It's, it, it can't be a, a blind love that doesn't know where it's going. It needs to be informed by something. It's not true here that love is all you need. Paul says it must be buttressed by knowledge and wisdom. It must be anchored in the truth. This word for knowledge very simply means uh, knowing the will of God, that it compels you in such a way that it compels you to perform it faithfully. That you know the will of God in such a way that it compels you to act in accordance with it. 
You know that that street a couple blocks away is closed, so you change your route. You go somewhere else. It causes action. Do you know God's will in such a way, your heart, your mind, that your will is then pleased to follow it? Similarly, a a depth of insight. It's a a discernment. It's It's a wisdom word. That God would fill you with wisdom in a way that sees the order of things. You see the way that God's world works and how it comes together. And it illumines for you a right course of action. And it tells you how to act in certain ways, in certain situations. Think of the parent who claims to love his son, but never disciplines him, never teaches him the hard lesson, never teaches him responsibility, never prepares him for the challenges of life. When that young man goes out into the world and reality hits him in the face like a ton of bricks, what's he going to say to himself? Didn't my dad love me to teach me these lessons? To teach me how it is that I need to go through life? See, a parent that knows the kinds of challenges life will throw your way will make sure, will make sacrifices, will change the course of action in order to teach those lessons to his child. Likewise, a a wise parent will know that it's not one size fits all with training a child. Different situations call for uh, wise dealings in different ways. Love that's coupled with knowledge and discernment. See, God knew exactly what we needed. Even when we didn't, he knew exactly what, what did we need. We needed a savior to pay for our sin. And so from all eternity, God willed to accomplish our redemption. He knew we needed to be redeemed. It cost, him, it cost the blood of Christ. Dennis Johnson says this. Paul is saying, I'm asking God to give you a love that acts for others' well-being and a love that knows what others' well-being really is. You have to know what is right for them, what is good for them. Christ's love goes beyond well intentions, beyond well-meant affection. It's characterized by accurate knowledge and insightful discernment. A community that is marked by this kind of love will not be content to watch their brothers and sisters slip into sin and patterns of sin and unbelief because you will know what is best for them. It will have the courage of conviction to challenge and to admonish for that is the best way forward. It will also have the right kind of wisdom and discernment as it looks outward. There is a world that is lost of people in need. Many of us have friends or relatives that we care about who reject Christ as Savior. How do we act in wisdom and discernment knowing that we've been given so great a salvation and we are to carry that to the ends of the earth? So that's the kind of self-denying love that Paul is praying for here. Self-denying love. Well, why? Why, should, why does he pray for this? Why should we pray for this? Because it produces transformation. It produces transformation, and that's what we see here uh, as we move through this passage, verses 10 and 11. Uh, the first result is that those filled with this love are able to discern what is best or to approve what is excellent. Uh, the phrase here tells of a, a posture of someone who goes into a store and is mulling over options. In the Gospel of Luke, there's a farmer that says, I need to go and examine my oxen. In other words, I need to go figure out which one of them is going to work best for me. See, they may all work to some degree. The question is, which one will work best? Think of going and trying to buy a used car. 
right? You don't know the history of those cars. You don't know how the, the, the previous owner drove it. Were they tough on the brakes? Did they drive too fast? Is there some incident that I don't know about in the history of this car? It's the ability to discern what would be the best choice. And so Paul is not uh, commending here the ability to discern right from wrong, objective morality, so much as it is discerning the best path forward, the best way to act. It's another wisdom idea, isn't it? In the context of the Philippians, they have been fractured by disunity. There's been disagreements among them. Uh, There have been friendships that have been broken. There's been personal agendas and preferences that have been placed over essential things. They've been majoring on the minors, and the the majors have slipped into the background. We understand this dynamic, don't we, when it comes to unity, unity in the church. If people operate by the idea that they will always get their way on essentials and non-essentials, unity is never going to be accomplished. It's less than a pipe dream. You might as well forget about it. But what is the wise path forward in situations? That's the kind of thing that Paul is commending. An ability to discern what is best. It basically comes down to this. Is this an issue where God's people together need to boldly take a stand? Or is this a matter where there can exist a difference of opinion? It basically comes down to, has God commanded this in his word or not? Has he left it up to consciences to determine what is best in this kind of a situation? We live in an age where we must boldly take a stand for all manner of things. The gospel, the truth, and the authority of scripture. Human sexuality, the sacredness of human life, the dignity, the sacredness of all human life. According to God's word, these are the kinds of things on which we must boldly take a stand. But there are other issues where differences of opinion is okay. Paul teases this out a little bit in the New Testament. One example would be meat sacrificed to idols. He says this is objectively not something where you have a a definite right and wrong. It's left up to the conscience of man. And so the, the basic question is, has God commanded this clearly in his word? If he has, you boldly take a stand on it. If he has not, you understand within the people of God that there can be a difference of opinion. We never disregard what God has commanded. We never compromise what God has commanded. But we also never add to what he has commanded. That's what Paul is saying. Never compromise what God has commanded. Never add to what God has commanded. He then speaks of a second fruit, and that is this, that you will be blameless on the day of Christ. Kind of interesting language, isn't it? The day of Christ that I'll be perfectly free from sin. Now it is true that on the day of Christ you will be glorified and then you are free of sin, but Paul's language seems to be at the appearance of Christ, how will you appear in God's sight? And Paul is not speaking of a moral perfectionism here. He's not saying that you will be completely free of all personal sin, this side of glory. What he's saying is, as you all live amongst one another, how have you lived as the people of God seeking unity? In unity in love. That's the kind of thing that he is saying. It's the kind of way that he speaks in 1 Corinthians. Where he commends to them this idea. Do not cause each other to stumble. That's a huge responsibility in the people of God. You are not to cause your brothers or sisters to stumble or to fall into sin. If everyone embraces that mentality. 
then as the people of God together, those who live according to that idea, in Paul's words here, appear blameless on the day of Christ Jesus. It means give no offense to your brother or sister. Take no offense from your brother or your sister unnecessarily. Blameless on the day of Christ as you seek to live together in this self-denying love. Finally, as he says at the end of the passage, that one fruit is that we exist and that we live to the glory and the praise of God. Those who are given this supernatural, self-denying love are those who will live and will have, have it their greatest joy and passion to live for the glory of God, to make much of your God. This is what Paul commends to us. The kind of mentality of John the Baptist in the Gospel of John. He must increase, but I must decrease. It's about knowing that God is the exact thing that human beings need in their souls to fill them with exactly what they need. And God is passionate about his glory. And he is zealous that his name would be magnified to the ends of the earth. And so God's people too likewise get in on that mission. To make much of the glory of God and to live for the glory of God. The self-denying love that only God can give you makes you love his glory and live for it all of your days. So that's the why. Why should we pray for this kind of a love? Because it, it makes us wise to discern the best path forward. It brings us together to not cause offense and not cause each other to stumble. It makes us love the glory of God. And then finally today, how? How does God give it to us? The what, the why, and the how. Well, we've seen that we're to pray this because we can't accomplish this self-denying love on our own. It's only God who gives it. But just as we close, Paul makes it clear that he doesn't grant it out of thin air, does he? He doesn't just zap us with this disconnected to other things and what he's doing. God gives this self-denying love in the fertile soil, in the living water, in the shining rays of the Son of God. He gives it in Christ. This is a love that comes only in Jesus Christ. Dennis Johnson says once again, Jesus is the avenue through whom God will answer Paul's prayer for his friends. Jesus is the conduit through whom God pours overflowing love with discerning wisdom into their thirsty hearts. Jesus is the wellspring of life from whom they are absorbing nutrients that enable them to bear fruit of peaceable righteousness. Jesus Christ. Are you in him and is he in you? Jesus Christ, crucified for our sins raised for our justification. Jesus Christ, the righteousness of God, our only hope, our only plea to rightly appear before the throne of God. His resurrection is your life. He is the hope of glory. He is the hope of righteousness. The metaphor of fruit is easy enough for us to picture, isn't it? Picture two orchards side by side. One orchard exists in the realm of Jesus Christ. Every tree full of fruit, every, each branch budding beautiful fruit that's ready to be harvested. The other orchard existing outside of Jesus Christ. Its fruit is nowhere to be found. The trees are barren. Every branch, nothing upon it. That which is good and holy and righteous before our God is found only 
in Jesus Christ. The fruit that comes through him and in him. He is the river of life. Plant yourself by him and see yourself flourish. Jesus is the living vine. Abide in him and bear much fruit according to God's sovereign work in you. He is the shining sun. Stay always in his light. This fruit of righteousness that Paul commends to us, that he says he prays for for the Philippians, that if he were alive today and he would have planted this church, he would be praying for it for us. And so the lesson is pray for this in your life and the life of your loved ones and the life of your brothers and sisters in Christ. This love that only God can give comes through Jesus Christ and in him alone. We proclaim him, we announce him as the way, the truth, and the life. We know no one comes to the Father but through him. Give yourself to Christ in faith and repentance. Trust that God will give you a self-denying love that comes only in Jesus Christ. Pray for this love earnestly. Pray for this love earnestly and actively seek to live out exactly how God has told us to live. He's given us the example in Jesus Christ. Not that we would achieve that righteousness on our own, but that we would bear the fruit of righteousness that comes in the Savior that God grants to us by his sovereign power in the Holy Spirit. Amen. Let's pray. Father, may your blessings flow and come to us in Christ the Son. By the power of the Spirit, would you give us a self-denying love? Would you furnish us with a knowledge and a wisdom and a discernment that would be able to see the best path forward in every situation, how we are to live together as your people? Allow us to see and love the glory of God. Help us to live and abide in Jesus Christ and in him alone. We pray in his name. Amen.